This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week on Cultivating Place, we're in conversation with Jenny Jones and Jen Toy. They are gardeners, landscape architects, and caring humans who are taking the idea of a test plot to the community level. A test plot is a traditional term used in botany and land reclamation work. It describes a smaller piece of land on which outcomes are observed and tested in order to apply appropriate treatments and have realistic expectations for a larger piece of land, whether for reclamation needs, the land seed bank, or for soil health and the like. But Jenny and Jen's idea that they call test plot is to create an ongoing hands-on experiment in ecological restoration that engages the community. Initially, a more casual project of the Terramoto LA design firm, Jenny and Jen's purpose for test plot is to celebrate the labor involved in land care and to build a stronger land and community-based land stewardship ethic starting from their own community of Los Angeles. Soon enough, they hope to be growing somewhere very close to you. Jenny and Jen, welcome to Cultivating Place. I am so pleased to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having us, Jennifer. We're big fans of your program. Exactly. Well, as we have already noted amongst ourselves, we are like the perfect Jennifer trifecta because (laughs) I am Jennifer, Jen Toy is Jen, and Jenny Jones is Jenny. But I've given them a very brief introduction. Jen Toy, introduce yourself a little more specifically. Tell people a little bit more about your relationship with plants as it exists right now in your life. Personally, I have been re-engaging with plants for the last couple of years with Test Plot. And I think what's been really motivating and exciting for me is that I feel like plants sort of like hit two sides of the coin. Like on one hand, it's really opened up a lot of doors about our relationship to the landscape. What are we planting? For example, you know, what is an invasive species? What does that mean? Why are we planting based on romantic notions of um, a past or a wilderness? Um, Are we looking towards the future for climate resiliency? How are we planting? We've been asking this question a lot about on the spectrum of native gardening to ecological restoration. How do you do that? How do you build a a relationship based on reciprocity rather than extraction and colonialism? So I feel like, you know, there's all these like really interesting questions that engaging with plants has opened up for me. But on the other side, plants are just like fun and beautiful and they smell great. And you can just like lay in a field of yarrow and bliss out and um, have a great time. So I feel like they kind of like hit the high and the low. That's awesome. And um, you, yeah, you pretty much just uh, scaled it for us right there. You know, they are, uh, they are happiness and they are uh, the, the whole profundity of the universe all at once. 
It's beautiful. Jenny Jones. Now, listeners, you might recognize Jenny Jones's name, um, not only because it's a beautiful name, but because she was one of the featured gardeners and gardens in uh, my book with Caitlin Atkinson under Western Skies. Uh, welcome to Cultivating Place to talk more about this great project you and Jen are working on. Tell us a little bit more about your relationship with plants right now, Jenny. Sure. That was pretty poetic, Jen. So I'm going to keep mine a little more basic. My relationship with plants right now is one of um, utility, right? It's my, it's my daily work. So I currently work at Terramoto and we make gardens for other people and other places, um, not for ourselves. So day in, day out, I'm working with clients, whether they're private homeowners or um, nonprofit institutions or schools to help everybody um, create wonderful gardens for themselves. So I do that every day at work and then I come home to my own garden and I obsess um, over Red Hill Gardens, which I share with my neighbor, Rhett. No fence between us. It's pretty magical and um, it's definitely an obsession. And then in my free time, I do test plot. So it's plant, plants are a bit of an obsession for me right now, which is not, it's in, I never, I didn't think I would get here. I came to the profession from a more um, bird's eye view um, level of kind of urban planning and landscape urbanism and thinking about big scales of time and space. And so the fact that I am an obsessive gardener now is, is sort of a surprise. And I just want to echo what Jen said about the joy that comes from interacting with plants every day. For me, part of my obsession now is like the touching, the smelling, the working with, I'm on a little bit of an herbalism kick, trying to undercover the powers of the, of the all these plants that we work with. Um, so yeah, I think that that encapsulates my relationship at this point in time. I love it. And, you know, it's one of the things I always end any sort of group conversation with is, you know, things can get very grave and they can get very serious and they can get uh, very detail oriented very quickly in the garden world, no matter how you express yourself, because it is this fabulous crucible for everything else in life. But at the same time, our greatest strength is is not that, but it is that kind of visceral joy that is um, instinctive, not conscious in many ways. So you hinted a little bit about this, uh, Jenny, based on you know the path that your relationship with plants has taken. But take us back just a little bit and share with us where you were born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a person who would be interested in something like urban planning and then have that segue into becoming this three-part harmony of a gardener on a public and a personal basis. Sure. So I was born and raised outside of Washington, D.C. in Arlington, mm -hmm. Virginia. And my parents both worked for the government, which a lot of a lot of um, families there were government families um, growing up. And you know, it was a pretty typical suburban existence. Uh, but one thing that I think my parents were not plants people, right? They were tax attorneys. Um, and so, <laughs> but they're very hard workers and they instilled in me a very hard work ethic, especially when it comes to yard chores. So I grew up doing a lot of lawn mowing and weeding and trimming Pacassandra and weeding out vine, you know, invasive vines. 
So a lot of really basic keeping the yard tidy, but I loved it and I loved to do it. And I loved to go do it at my grandmother's house, house in Bethesda. Um, I just loved mowing the lawn. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's a weird thing for a child to love. And then um, because my parents had these wonderful jobs, it allowed them to take time off during the summer. So we would take a month off with the family when the kids were out of school, there were four of us kids. And we would go to either Colorado or the Eastern shore of Virginia and just be for a month, very unstructured, no goals, just um, floating around aimlessly, exploring, playing in creeks, playing in the muck, just nice. lots of spare time. So I, I'm very grateful that my parents gave that to me. You know, I didn't have anybody teaching me about gardening or growing your own food or um, it was pretty basic <laughs> um, exposure, but but I would say it was it was very deep. Just having that freedom to be in nature as a child was very formative for me. Take us like in in the distilled version of how you got from from there to you know urban planning yeah. to where you are now. Uh, went to University of Virginia, studied an interdisciplinary environmental degree, and called environmental thought and practice. That was very formative mm. for me. Just seeing I bet environmental yeah. issues from lots of different angles. Jen's got a very similar degree, which she'll talk about. Um, and then I taught middle school science for, for a couple of years. I did teach for America, uh, which was also very formative, but in other ways, not, not really so much about plants. I did teach science, but um, more about engaging with the diverse communities and engaging with children and finding a love of education. Then I went back to UVA for more school. I did grad school there and I studied urban environmental planning and landscape architecture which my undergraduate degree had sort of exposed me to a little bit because of its interdisciplinary nature. And when I was there, landscape urbanism was, was the hot topic in lands, within landscape ar architecture. And so um, there was a lot of talk and reading and theorizing about cities and kind of this, I think it was the, the beginning of the kind of sustainability movement, that word being the buzzword. And everybody's trying to figure out how are we going to design our cities better? So that was the, the buzzy thing at the moment. And I was very enamored with that, having come from West teaching in West Oakland, where I was in the core of a city that was very, very troubled. But there were a few people at UVA that were garden people also. Ah. Nancy Takahashi and Elizabeth Meyer. There's others as well. Um, Ethan Carr, you know, garden historians, theorists. Yeah, I got trained in that a little bit as well. And I felt I feel very fortunate to have gotten that. It didn't click so much when I was in school, but when I left school and I got my own garden, finally here in Los yeah. Angeles, we bought a house, finally had my own garden. It like all clicked, the power of gardens clicked for me. And I went in a completely other direction away from the urbanism. It's possible I might swing back at some point. I think they, the more we can bring those two things together, urbanism and gardening together, I think the better. But that's kind of how my pen pendulum has swung over the years. Yeah. And now you are a full-fledged landscape architect with Terramoto in, in Los Angeles. Yes. And as you said, that's, that's your day job yeah. obsession. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I love, I love all these threads coming in here in terms of, um, community and public policy and theory, uh, and then, you know, how they get made manifest in, um, both design and public planning or urban planning mm -hmm. and gardening. Mm -hmm. So, all right, we're going to go over to you, Jen, pull in a couple more threads. 
and then see how these threads start to weave together into the fabric that is test plot. But first, start us off with where were you born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a, a person for whom this would be your, your calling and your path? I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the East Bay. Um, similar to Jenny, my parents were not outdoorsy. They were definitely not gardeners. They still are not gardeners. <laughs> I went home to visit over the holidays and they had these oak trees that have just like popped up from volunteers and they've just like lollipopped all of them. But luckily, I was adopted by many of my friends' parents, and they brought me hiking and camping um, in Muir Woods, in Point Reyes, um, Mount Tam. And I think that time, which was like, you know, around high school, um, and those experiences definitely shaped who I am. And um, the Bay Area feels like home, even though I haven't lived there for 25 years because I can just like close my eyes and like remember the, the afternoon fog rolling in. And, you know, so I think there's definitely a deep like landscape connection because of being able to spend that time. And then in college and in my early twenties, I, I had like a variety of different like landscape jobs. So I was a ranger um, at Hetchy Dam in Yosemite for a summer and, um, one of my first jobs was on the grounds crew of the Morton Arboretum in Chicago. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And in um, grad school, I had an internship with a landscape contractor. It wasn't really an internship. It was a job <laughs> um, being a pruner. So I think those jobs definitely shaped me in terms of like that connection to the land. Mm -hmm. And what were you studying at school sort of simultaneous to this work experience? Yeah, so in school, um, I went to Harvard um, in Cambridge, and they have this um, small department called the History of Science, and I kind of stumbled upon it because I thought I might be interested in pre-med, like both of my parents are scientists, um, my dad's an astronomer, my mom's a hematologist, but I definitely decided pre-med was not for me, but I loved the way that the department was really grounded in a liberal arts education and perspective, like looking as a historian, but through the lens of science. And in that department, you know, I learned about like the history of the environmental movement and uh, it just started down this path of like this combination of like science and art and environment, which led me to landscape architecture. And so that's what you did your grad graduate school work in. And where did you do that work? Um, I was also at Harvard um, at the GSD. I love that history of science department. Who even knew that was there? So let's move with you, Jen, towards this discussion of test plot and how you came to it. And then we'll, we'll get started with exactly what it is and its genesis story. Yeah, out of school, um, I had sort of two interests. I think one was um, definitely on, on cities and sort of the landscape of is the fabric of our lives outside of the building. <laughs> My first couple jobs were really focused on that scale. And uh, I think what was really cool is that I met Jenny because we both worked for a firm called Olin in Philadelphia. 
and they also had a small office in LA. And so I knew I always wanted to come back to California and was able to make that happen about 10 years ago. And so we worked together and we sat, um, we were butt mates cheek to cheek and we were pregnant together with our um, sons. So um, we spent a lot of time together and that's sort of how the really, our relationship started. This is Cultivating Place. Jenny Jones and Jen Toy are the gardeners, landscape architects, and caring humans behind Test Plot, an ongoing hands-on experiment in community-based ecological restoration. We'll be right back after a break with more about Test Plot. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know, when we think about a traditional test plot and then the nuanced and creative play on that concept that Jen Toy and Jenny Jones are engaged in in their project known as Test Plot, when we think about our own gardening selves and what we germinate from the reach of our own individual labors and garden hoses, all of our gardens are test plots, aren't they? seeing what will grow, what won't, what our growing things need and what they don't need, who will come and visit there and who does not come. What is your test plot showing and teaching you? I'm gonna think about this a lot harder in relationship to my own land and my own community of landscapes that come together as the fabric of our lives. We're back now to our conversation about Test Plot, an ongoing hands-on experiment in community-based ecological restoration and community-based land stewardship in Los Angeles. As we come back, Jenny Jones shares the germination story of the first Test Plots, stewarded by Terramoto. So Jen and I met um, at Olin, and then we both went on and did different things. I ended up um, making my way to Terramoto. And while I was at Terramoto, our office is, our first office was in Echo Park near um, the foot of Elysian Park, which is Los Angeles's oldest public park. And David Godshaw, one of the co-founders of Terramoto and I both also live in the neighborhood. And so we would both separately, you know, with our families and our dogs take walks in the park and then we'd come back to work and we'd talk about it. And we would talk about kind of the sad state that the park was in, um, down in the valley where the where the um, irrigation's good and they're they have lawns and there's bounce houses and parties. That's great. Up on the dusty slopes, it's um, a pretty sad state of decades of neglect. Eucalyptus that were planted, you know, formerly fashionable eucalyptus that were planted in decades past that are now major fire hazards. They're not really designed or they're not evolved to survive the, the kind of mega drought that, Cal that Southern California now experiences um, and actually has experienced for a long, long time, these periods of extreme drought. Uh, and the LA Times did a piece on the Elysian Park calling it a zombie forest, just a, a massive fire waiting to happen because of all of these half-dead eucalyptus trees and mustard that's invasive everywhere and 
just not a managed landscape and and not unmanaged in a like healthy wild way <laughs> unmanaged in in kind of a dangerous way actually so we started thinking about well what could we do you know so we we started attending community meetings and we very quickly realized that um, the community group and rec and parks are so overextended with very real urban problems homelessness crime graffiti um, trash, um, lack of funding, broken irrigation, just so many intense problems that they could not focus. They did not have the bandwidth to focus on ecology. So we saw that as a way in where we could be helpful. And we started brainstorming with Max Cantor, who runs um, a wonderful garden maintenance company called Saturate. They focus on native plants. So he's a friend. We started brainstorming with him about what could we do in the park? Could we do like a rogue operation? Could we do some guerrilla gardening? Do we want to go rogue? Do we want to go sanctioned? What are we even doing? Are we doing it seed? We just started brainstorming and we came up with this idea of a test plot. We decided to go the sanctioned route instead of the rogue route, which was good. We got permission from Rec and Parks to um, basically try, try our own ecological restoration um, because they're so overextended. They, they, do, they do bits. But um, the impetus was also to try to engage local community members with the park. So to say, we don't need rec and parks to be out here with us. We can do this ourselves. So we, um, there's a, a lone hose bib up at the tip, the, north, the northwest tip of Elysian Park. It's like one of the only working public hose bibs up there. And it has created this incredible hub of, of activity in the park just because there's water. There's one hose bib and the dog walkers all come through there. It's like one of the main dog walking routes in the park. Um, runners come through there simply because there's water. And there is an existing community garden that I need to mention and honor. It's called Marion Harlow Memorial Grove. She was one of the found, original founders of the Citizens Committee to Save Elysian Park, um, which they saved the park, I think in the sixties from the development of a convention center in the park. So they're very anti-development. So there's a beautiful memorial grove up there. It's mostly consists of aloes and jades and non-natives. So we kind of piggybacked off that original Marion Harlow Grove and ran a hose from the hose bib and took it as far as it could go and started watering and started our test plots. So yeah, that's kind of the origin story. So it started as a total experiment. We did not know how well it was going to and actually the truth is the first test plot was a total failure jen i don't even know if you know this story the first test plot was a complete failure it involves a, a band of terremoto employees during a rainstorm one day running up to the hill and frantically trying to scatter seeds in the rain and i think like three poppies came up or something it was just not it was not timed right it was poorly thought out it was fun we had a great time but it was a total failure <laughs> we did a little more research for the official test plots we talked to ecologists we talked to plant growers we talked to neighbors um, the citizens committee to save Asian park as many people as we could to get as many perspectives as we could on how to bring back some native shrub lair into the park it's so great. I love all of this, but let, let I just want to go back okay. and unpack a tiny bit. Uh, about what year was the frantic seed sowing in the rainstorm? And then how did you develop any kind of process or structure for the second more formal attempt? Um, and 
so this is a three-part question. Yeah. Year, uh, how process for the next formalization, and then uh, the third is maybe talk about why you called it a test plot, like what you're riffing off of there. So the frantic failure was, I would say, um, twenty late 2018, early 2019. Um, okay. yep. So not that long ago. Um, and then we decided to formalize it. We decided we needed to do a little more planning and uh, be more thoughtful about it, <laughs> although we did have a lot of fun. Um, and so we started attending the Citizens Committee to Save Elysian Park meetings more officially. And we said we wanted to, we pitched it to them because they're kind of the gatekeepers of the community, gatekeepers of the park, and we wanted to get their blessing. We presented the idea of how can we engage in some ecological restoration, some community-based land stewardship. And I mean, what we saw mostly with Rec and Parks, we started going to some Rec and Parks meetings too, just to sort of see what's the landscape, no pun intended. What's, what's everyone talking about? What projects are people working on? Where's the money going? And, you know, we started getting into the politics of it all. And it was, it's a lot. There's a lot of politics and history, even to just these community groups, right? Of money and personalities and who's in charge at CD13 versus who's in charge at CD1 and who supports the park versus who supports the Dodgers. It's like, there's so many <laughs> layers of political complexity. Yeah, yes. It's paralyzing. So, yes. but Rec and Parks is very focused, um, at least about four years ago, they were very focused on combating the urban heat island effect through the planting of resilient trees which is a very noble cause, but that was their focus. And they were not planting native trees. They were planting South African, um, Australian trees because they're you know, not susceptible to the polyphagous shot hole borer. So, and there's, this is where it gets into some of the science of restoration that Jen and I love to have long-winded discussions about, about to plant a sycamore or not to plant a sycamore, to plant an oak or not. I mean, there are some people that now say don't plant oaks because of this shot hole borer, which we listen to the people who say it's wrong. There are some arborists and ecologists who say that's wrong. You should still be planting oaks. So those are the people we choose to listen to. So they're very focused on trees. We're focused on the shrub layer. We decide to keep it as simple as possible and as easy as possible for volunteers. So it is the concept is a hose that runs to that lone hose bib. How far does the hose run? And then when you hook a sprinkler up to it, the shape of the plot is determined by the throw of the sprinkler. Love it. So anybody could go out there and hook it up and walk away and stand back and watch the birds and they're helping to establish this, this native plot. So, yeah, we just tried to keep it as simple and cheap as possible because we were doing this pro bono. So that was, it all came about as kind of like, what's, what are the minimal inputs that we could put into this? And that was one of the original tests in test plot was just to see if we, what is the bare minimum that we could do in terms of money um, to get some native plants reestablished in Elysian Park? All right. So take us from there, Jen. Um, we have this, you know, germination story and, uh, and uh, the basic form, which is still a little nebulous, but a form, where does it go from here? And what are next goals? Who is the intended audience? What is the intended outcome? How, how does this continue to grow? 
So around 2019, um, Jenny, before the pandemic started, Jenny invited me to come see this, you know, like odd little piece of land that she <laughs> had started taking care of. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is just like in, in your park. And, you know, we're always, we're always riffing uh, with one another. So we have this like long relationship and, you know, we just asked this question of like, well, like, can we do this in communities and parks across LA? What would that look like? While keeping it like hyper local and really specific to the microclimate and the bio um, ecology and the community, but replicate it. Um, so I had started teaching at USC um, around that point, and we thought like, oh, this could be a really great opportunity to bring it in, into academia. Um, and um, maybe even start a network of test plots um, that were tailored to each site and community. Um, so I think that was like one of the exciting turning points, but then we saw it also um, as an opportunity to actually start to influence landscape design education. So I think that's the other part of it is um, wanting there to be a more explicit relationship to, between design and labor in landscape design um, education. Um, Beautiful. And so we thought, then the pandemic hit, <laughs> and um, we thought, well, test plot would be a great studio course because you're basically, you know, in the field all the time. Um, and the work is really about learning how to um, document existing conditions, um, start to experiment with a grow kill cycle, learn what seeds are in the seed bank, um, start to flush out the weeds and spend that time, that process. Um, and so we started doing that with students and um, teaching design in, in this way that's like very hands-on and experimental. And then that really en enabled us to like experiment with this idea of the test. So, you had asked that question about um, why test plot. Um, you know, it's an agricultural term. I think that farmers often use it to describe like plots of land where they will try and like different strategies to maximize their crop production, their, their yield. Um, and I don't know what Jenny and David and the other folks at Terremoto were thinking originally, but I think for now test has evolved into um, like, maybe like three spheres. One is this idea around like community stewardship, like how how do, how are folks organizing um, to engage around a test plot? Um, and then a, secondly around like um, landscape practice, like what are the different strategies that we can use? Um, how can we experiment with um, growing natives in, in public lands? And then thirdly, like the science, so what, what should we plant? Like what's, what, how do we promote biodiversity? Um, how can we you know, promote genetic diversity? All these different things. Mycorrhizal fungi. Yes, mycorrhizal fungi. Yeah, okay, this is so great. I mean, and it really should be required curriculum from about kindergarten through graduate school, right? But um, 
walk us through like I loved how you just described all of these different facets of what you can learn and and how you were teaching it there uh, as a studio course for your students at the University of Southern California. That's the USC, right? And uh, what exact are you teaching landscape architecture? What is your what are the what is the class title or your professor title? Yeah, so I've been a lecturer there um, for the last few years, and the course um, has changed every year, but it's been called Land and Labor, um, and it's basically centered around Tesla as a design build initiative. But then looking at the sort of larger framework of labor um, to help inform like, in the research. Um, so um, the students um, two years ago, um, they the basic like final product was the test foot, but also to envision like what was the future of land care in LA? What could that look like? And so to help inform that, um, they interviewed a series of different people in land care from gardeners to land managers um, and had the experience of like doing some of that um, primary research and talking to the laborers themselves. Um, and the course um, changes from year to year, but it's always sort of around that idea of like this intersection between land and labor. Jenny Jones and Jen Toy are the gardeners, landscape architects, and caring humans behind Test Plot, an experiment in community-based ecological restoration. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about the specifics of Test Plot. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer, Thinking Out Loud this week. You know, this intersection of land and labor brings up so many important topics, and it harkens back to my note early in the conversation that we can get really grave and really earnest really quickly when we're talking about the garden and its interaction with and impact on our greater cultures, as well as our greater culture's impact on our gardening and our land care especially in common spaces, both of which are good, right? That's good that we are that serious about our landscape care and planning and design. That's good as long as you have the bandwidth for that and you're ready and able to think and see these lines of action, reaction, cause and effect that our gardens are a part of because there is a decided link between land care and labor, by which I do not just mean the hours it takes to care for and help steward any piece of land that has been cultivated in a specific way and for which humans have specific goals, especially in urban places. I'm also talking about that link between labor laws, public policy, fair conditions for working, fair conditions for workers, these are connections that have long been obscured 
and erased in our cultural understanding of how a head of lettuce or a pound of green beans or a pint of strawberries gets to us in the grocery store. It has long been obscured or erased in how the public and corporate land of our communities, let alone our private lands, gets gardened, gets designed, planted, weeded, mowed, watered. Who are the people caring for all of that life? And who is caring for those people? As any gardener knows, there are many, many hard labor hours in gardening even a simple plot of ground, let alone managing acres and acres of it. This is labor on whom our entire food system is dependent, on whom much of the hoped-for biodiversity of our urban environments is dependent, which is a very, very big load to carry. Making the visible connection between underpaid or undervalued or underprotected or undertrained land care is one of the leading topics in our professional horticultural world right now, as it should be. Bringing it out into the open and bringing it to decision-making tables may in fact bring about progress. The good people at TestPlot believes that is the path forward, and that is the possibility worth growing towards. And I am all in. We're back now to our conversation about TestPlot, an ongoing hands-on experiment in community-based ecological restoration and community-based land stewardship in Los Angeles. As we come back, Jen Toy shares the process of creating one of their civil land stewarding test plots. One of the objectives of test plot is to make visible, to elucidate the often obscured or erased relationship between land care and the far too frequently undervalued, poorly paid, and poorly treated labor on whose work all of our land care relies. So the second test plot is a great example. Um, it um, is at Rio de Los Angeles State Park, which is along the LA River. Um, although the river is now channelized and doesn't flood um, that landscape any longer. Um, and the reason why we picked that location um, was because um, this was really at the beginning of the pandemic and I knew that we weren't going to be able to do um, any direct community outreach to get folks involved. Um, Elysian, I think, has happened that way where um, they've been able to create a community group sort of organically by folks walking by and interested people. Um, but um, I wanted to work with a community partner that already had a stewardship program happening. And so, um, we were introduced to Luis Rincon, who's the community engagement um, leader for California State Parks um, in Southern California, and by Marcos Trinidad from the Audubon Center at Deps Park. And um, Luis organizes this amazing program that they have called um, State Park Champions. And so um, there's a group of abuelas who 
um, have been caring for different gardens around the park at Rio um, for many years. And there's also state park champions, volunteers that come. Um, and so building off of that momentum was really important for the second test plot. Um, and once we started talking, we were like, yes, this is a perfect place. Like Rio already has all these community initiatives and we could sort of keep going. And um, Audubon had started this like oak um, woodland walnut um, planting and we sort of extended that. So similar to Elysian building off of the Marion Harlan Grove, we sort of you know, started building off of um, that existing habitat restoration. And um, I did it with my students and um, being landscape architecture students, they, they looked at the history and were really enamored by its, the site's history as a formal rail yard and that sort of linear landscape, um, industrial landscape. And so um, the design rather than circles and formed by the, by the throw of a sprinkler became um, rectangular beds and ended up being very practical as well because then we could, um, have a very clear visual cue for volunteers, um, which bed had what things and what test elements. So some of them were using, we used mycorrhizal fungal inoculant. Um, some of them we used compost as a mulch. Um, some of them we did seed, a mixture of seed and live plants. Um, and um, the, what it feels like I think is that, um, in that initial um, site selection, it was like very urban, very dusty, basically compacted landscape. Um, it was sort of a forgotten piece of yeah. the park. And we started the grow kill cycle and not much came up. So when you say grow kill cycle, I think what I understand you to mean is that this is where you start watering and you see what comes up and what comes up then you identify at the first possible ability to identify a seedling and say, you know, this is Medusa grass. We don't want it. This is uh, purple needle grass. We want it that kind of, so that you are identifying what's already there. You're in activating the seed bank so that you can make a decision on what to do next. Is that right? Correct. Yes. It's not sort of a wipe the slate clean, bring in imported fill and, you know, bring in imported plants. It's really about like understanding what the existing situation is so that we know like how intense is that seed bank, how, how much effort is going to be needed to do site prep. Um, and at Rio in particular, like there wasn't that much actually. Um, it, was, it was kind of like Bermuda grass and some um, telegraph weed, which is a native annual. So the main like grow kill actually became more of like turf removal, <laughs> um, which is different than um, basically all the other test plots. And then um, working with the students and the community volunteers, we planted it. And then that's been in the ground, I guess, for two years now, two plus years. And yeah. Uh -huh. And so wait, hang on a second, go back to, and we planted it. How did you plant it? What did you plant? And how did you decide what to plant? So because it was in a historically, um, a historical riparian area um, and because um, the Audubon Center at Dubs Park and 
the state park have their own environmental scientist, they have a pretty rigorous plant selection process. Okay, great. Yeah. So we selected plants that um, were appropriate for restoring least bells vireo habitat, um, which is one of their requirements, and then other sort of historically riparian species. And so that is, um, I, I believe you mentioned earlier, that is an endangered songbird of that region that they're trying to bring back by cre- recreating its habitat, or restoring habitat. And so can you give us uh, an example of what kinds of things you planted? Are you looking at a full scale ecosystem with like trees and shrubs? Or are you sticking to the shrubs that Jenny was talking about earlier? So the Baldwin Hills test plot was the third test plot, and um, our focus there is more around the plant palette. And I think it's been really interesting, um, also run as a studio through USC. And I think what the students are really interested in is this question of what to plant and how to plant, because it's within this context of this very intensive restoration work that folks from um, Ellie Audubon, which is going to transform into Nature Nexus Institute and um, a high school greenhouse program that they have. Um, So they've been doing this work for decades and we sort of come in and said, yes, we wanna learn about restoration, but could we do it slightly more experimentally? Um, And so we had a series of conversations, reviews, crits with them about Um, how to approach that. And what we landed on was um, doing this kind of like past, present, future plant palette and intermixing them. Um, The native landscape there is coastal sage scrub, and that's really what they're restoring. So sort of the foundation species are like Ancelia californica, California bush sunflower, white sage, um, mule fat, which is one of our Baccarus species, right? And Polaris, yeah. yes. Um, and monkey flower, yeah, monkey flower and, oh, I. Do you have, uh, do you have Garia and Styrax in your chaparral down there? Not really, yeah. Yeah, but it's one of the most, I mean, I think listeners will recognize the name coastal sage scrub and recall that it's one of the most endangered ecosystems in the California floristic province. Yeah. So um, the endemic ecosystem there is the coastal sage scrub, and that's really what they've been restoring. So that's composed of California bush sunflower, white sage, um, and so many others. Um And so what we did was say like, oh, historically, this was a north facing slope. There may have been southern oak woodland. We sort of try and experiment with actually some tree canopy um, in addition to coastal sage scrub and then also look towards um, grassland species from inland um, that might do better with a hotter and drier climate. And so the students actually um, proposed intermixing all three of these within this large circle. And um, we the test is really to see sort of over time which species do well. So these three very different test plots are the foundation for the work there in Los Angeles. And 
you clearly, uh, over these last four years since it really got going, um, two of which have been under pretty profound pandemic and drought conditions. Um, what are some of the, the, the lessons or conclusions or what is your synthesis of all these different levels of testing? Because you are, you are testing, um, how to bring community together. You are testing how to engage the public in who are not normally involved in public land stewardship into public land stewardship in some way. You are testing uh, ecological restoration and uh, and you are testing public land care labor issues, which is a whole lot right there, ladies. So Tell, tell us about some of your conclusions so far and, and kind of what your, your takeaways are at those different levels. Um, and then we'll, we'll go from there. I'll take this one, Jen. I'll start, I'll start it at least. Um, after the third test plot, after Baldwin Hills, I realized that this idea is really taking off. And that was one of the lessons, the big lessons was I was a little bit surprised how, um, how interested people were and how quickly the idea was replicating. When we started the first test plot at Elysian Park, there was a background dream of little test plots everywhere, but we at Terramoto and at Saturate could really only handle so much. So we, it was so crucial when USC and Jen partnered with us and allowed for the expansion of the idea of test plot. But the, the degree to which it expanded and the rapidity was beyond what I even thought was possible. So after the third one at Baldwin Hills, I realized this idea is going to keep growing and there's are so many things that we can test. And I think to Jen's point earlier about every site is different. That's one of been one of the biggest conclusions for us is that this idea is not an idea to replicate without any flexibility. It's a, it's a, loose idea about community land stewardship and about um, thinking about restoration in a more open and flexible way. But that that seed of the idea needs to be agile and transform and be flexible depending on what site we're working on and what community we're working in. So the one, as you mentioned, one of the tests is in community capacity. What does stewardship look like? who's there, how do we get them there? And for every site, it's different, whether we're using social media to bring people out or relying on that existing volunteer base that Jen, that Jen was referring to at Rio de Los Angeles, the abuelas who come every week, rain or shine, you know, they're very reliable versus younger populations at Elysian Park that are sometimes we have to wrangle them a little bit more and they're not as reliable. <laughs> so it's, it's meeting the community where they're at and it's, we have had we have learned that we have to be very agile in how we work with communities and all of the partners that we're working with audubon nature nexus state parks um, usc every there are so many personalities and ways of working and so that kind of agility and working with everybody is part of what makes it exciting but i think what what is important about it is this idea that there is no one size fits all model of, of community land stewardship diversity in stewardship is such a great thing. Um, so that's been one of the big takeaways. You say, uh, this was taking off 
what is your measure of taking off? What does that mean when you say that? Because I think um, partly what I think people would like to be able to visualize is, you know, based on the throw of, you know, one sprinkler or the, you know, the, the rectangle of one rail section, even if there are six of them or five of them, it's a, it's a relatively small space. So what are your goals here? Are you looking to improve every park? Are you looking to improve native plant habitat? Are you looking to improve uh, nature and cultural literacy uh, in our public spaces? All of the above. All of the above for sure. But I think the focus is on the um, the stewardship part and the getting people re-engaged with the land. Yes, we want to do habitat restoration. Yes, we have big dreams about restoring large swaths. But because we lie somewhere in between gardening and restoration, we're not, the mission is not to like restore it to some pristine state that we're not even really sure about. It's more about getting people re-engaged with the land. Um, so I like it. that's, I think one of the most important metrics for us, if all that other stuff happens along with it, some habitat restoration, that's wonderful too. But the most important piece is getting people out there and feeling a connection to their commons. I like it. And, and you know, there is that sense that every single one of us will have had, no matter who we are or where we live. I think I can say that with some confidence of your experience of walking through Elysian park and being like, this is it's kind of dodgy. Like what happened here? Why is this such a mess? And uh, then taking that next step to say, what can I do about it? And, and, you know, which taps right into what you all are doing, which is here's one of the things you can do about it, or one of the ways you can go about doing something about it. And that is that we are all responsible for the land and the community that we live around to some extent. And, uh, and every little bit counts. So Jen, when you think about how, especially in the face of also taking this to the academic uh, paradigm shift um, on, on how we talk about and think about and raise the next generation of, um, you know, official professional land stewardship molders, uh, what are your takeaways? What, what, what are you, what are your conclusions? And, you know, when you cast your mind five years in the future, uh, and where this is going, describe that for us. I think from like an academic and professional perspective, I just would love to open people's eyes up to thinking about like design as a slower and gentler process and one that isn't just so focused on awards and capital D design and sort of the ribbon cutting, but you know, greater attention to what happens after that. And in my dream world, we would change the way that construction contracts are created so that, you know, right now we, we base our construction contracts on the AIA template um, architecture. And, you know, landscapes really are different, are a different animal. And I think that there needs to be um, greater focus and privileging of the relationship between the design team and the maintenance team. And then from like a stewardship perspective, I think that, you know, I feel like test plot is basically a sort of a new type of civil society organization. And 
I think about um, Robert Putnam's work in Bowling Alone, where he documents the decline of um, social capacity in America and the decline of people's involvement in things like, you know, the Boy Scouts and the PTA and churches and bowling leagues um, and these spaces where you can get involved in your local community and build, you know, democracy. <laughs> I think that for us, like we've seen that in action, we've seen that happening at test plots. And I think there's a real hunger and a need for that, um, that idea that Jenny referred to in terms of taking care of the commons. Um, and because test plot is really not sort of just like a one day volunteer event, but really um, encouraging folks to build a, a more longer term regular relationship with their local park um, where we ask them to come out once a week or once a month um, and see the seasons change. You know, I think there is that opportunity um, to build a community around it. So that's what I'm most excited about and looking forward to it. Jennifer, you asked earlier about what, you know, what was the metrics of success that we saw it was taking off. And one of the biggest metrics for us was just the response that we got from people. After the first couple of test plots, we had people reaching out and saying, when are you going to put a test plot in my neighborhood? I want something to take care of. We had people at Elysian that called it their church during the pandemic. So now we actually call our volunteer events plant church because it was so such an important outlet for people in a in an otherwise difficult time. So just the power that we felt from the the interest of the people, that has been one of the biggest measures of success for me. It's not necessarily the acreage. It's the fact that we're spreading out into little pinpoints throughout LA and reaching a lot of people for whom we can feel how special that opportunity to take care of their land has been for them. I love it. Is there anything either of you would like to add about how you have grown through the course of this as educators and designers and gardeners, or how it has landed with any of the communities in which you have worked? I would just quickly echo what Jen said before about the possibility of transforming our profession, the profession of landscape architecture into one that brings gardening back into the fold rather than pushing maintenance away and saying maintenance is a, is a bad word and we need low maintenance landscapes. Instead, celebrating the labor that it takes to have a healthy landscape. The possibility of that test plot has presented for exploring that theme has been way bigger than I thought it was gonna be. So that's been really special to um, start to see the possibility for changing how we design and um, taking away this, this you know, instead of this idea of the designers are these almighty, powerful, intelligent people, taking some of that power away and putting it back in the hands of the people, I think has, has been really inspiring. Yeah. Jen, what about you? In terms of um, what's landed, I feel like We've been super privileged to have great partners and diverse partners in terms of who they are and how they interact with um, parks for the first. Now we have five test plots. And I think moving forward, we're really interested in like 
being proactive and engaging with folks that can help us with this. We're, we're learning, right? And thinking about things like co-management and indigenous practices um, and understanding of the landscape. Um, I think that that's kind of where we're headed in terms of just being more specific and precise about what TestBlot can offer and what we can learn in return. Thank you both very much for being guests on the program today. It has been uh, very cerebral and uh, exciting to talk to you and think about some of these big picture on the ground themes in our in our growing world right now. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Jenny Jones and Jen Toy are gardeners, landscape architects, and caring humans, taking the practical concept of a test plot to a cultural and community level as an ongoing hands-on experiment in community-based ecological restoration. One of the great hopes of TestPlot is seeing the art, craft, and science of gardening being brought back into the fold of a fully envisioned manifestation of landscape architecture. In this, Jen and Jenny see the possibility for changing how landscapes are designed, especially in larger urban environments, and in seeing the possibility of designers, stewards, and communities working together instead of working as individual and separated parts. Listen in again next week when we head to the prairies of the Canadian Midwest in conversation with gardener Janet Melrose, author of The Prairie Gardener's Go-To Gardening Guides for all manner of topics related to gardening. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It is made possible by listeners just like you. For more information and many images from the first five pilot test plots in Los Angeles, growing community-based ecological stewardship in their place, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com, where you can also subscribe to the program so you never miss an episode. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support by Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.